Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. My name is Marianne Stevens, and I'm here representing the British School at Rome, uh, which is undertaking, in a collaboration with the Royal Academy, uh, this evening's important discussion. I was invited to say a few words about the British School at Rome and its architecture programme, with specific reference to this evening's discussions. And I'm delighted so to do, and I promise I will be brief. Um, the British School at Rome is one of the most prestigious research academies in Rome. It was founded in 1901, and it moved into its current building, which was initially constructed as the British Pavilion for the International Exhibition in Rome in 1911. The British School moved in there in 1916. This now houses a major research library, residential accommodation, and studios. The remit of the British School at Rome is to provide the framework and resources to enable world-class interdisciplinary research into the art, archaeology, histories and culture of initially Italy and now the entire region of the Mediterranean. From 1911, the British School at Rome had complemented its support of academic research at postgraduate and postdoctoral levels with scholarships for practicing artists and architects. Today, the British School at Rome awards some 30 scholarships a year in the humanities, social sciences, the fine arts, and architecture. It welcomes 600 researchers each year, has published 17 monographs since 2010, is undertaking 12 discrete archaeological projects in Italy and Turkey, and holds 70 events a year in Italy and the UK, all of which are open to the public. In short, the British School at Rome is the bridge between the intellectual and cultural heart of Rome, Italy, and the wider Mediterranean, and creative and academic research based in Britain and the Commonwealth. Now, the architectural program, which is curated by Marina Engel, is well established at the British School at Rome, where it contributes to the highly distinctive way in which the institution addresses modern studies and new academic methodologies. The program consists of a sequence of lectures, discussions, and exhibitions which reflects the research concerns of the institution. Architecture, indeed, provides a springboard that can serve as a critical interlocutor with the study of urbanscapes, landscapes, individual buildings, and social and economic issues in which the British School at Rome has proven expertise. The discussion this evening comes within the framework of the 2016-18 program, Meeting Architecture 3, Fragments. This has been addressing how memories, emotions, and ideologies arising from conflict are invariably tied to buildings, ruins, and their contents. These have analyzed, recorded, interpreted, and recalled through architecture, the fine arts, literature, and history, calling upon critics and academics, um, both uh, Italian and international. This evening, we have, of course, the distinguished architectural historian, architect, critic, and architectural theorist, Professor Joseph Rickbert, in conversation with an equally distinguished artist, Miroslav Balka, who will be considering memory, fragment, and responsibility within the context of conflict. The British School at Rome is delighted to be collaborating with the Royal Academy this evening. We hope that this will be a continuing relationship, which, together with other key partnerships with world-class organizations, underscores the British School at Rome as an institution of both national and international significance. The British School at Rome is funded through a number of different sources, including the British government via the British Academy, and also activity-specific sponsorship. The architecture program in particular is generously co-sponsored by Alford Hall, Monaghan Morris, Bennett's Associates, the John S. Cohen Foundation, and Wilkinson Eyre, 
with additional support from the Kochame Trust and the Brian Gizness Charitable Trust. I hope you enjoy this evening. Thank you. Marianne is always a hard act to follow, but I would just like to add my thanks and gratitude to the British School at Rome and to say that this evening's event, in a sense, is both symptomatic of the international and collegial attitudes that the British School at Rome have and to which the Royal Academy aspires. So we have two very distinguished Polish men here, separated by about 32 years, um, who both grew up in Warsaw in different circumstances, whose work as critic, commentator, theorist, and artist who is both personal in certain respects. I'm looking forward to trying to tease out of Joseph Rickbert the impact of growing up in the 1930s in Warsaw, what impact, if any, that had on his work. To Miroslav, who's used his own personal experiences as a way of ruminating on the collective history of post-war Poland, communist Poland, but also of the pre-communist period traumas of the Nazi occupation, among other things. Both Joseph and Miroslav are going to give brief 10-minute presentations, ruminations, and then hopefully my role can be minimal um, as I let them converse with each other. Joseph Rickwood's engagement with, with London in particular, but Britain in general, began in 1939, and he was educated at the Bartlett School of Architecture and the AA. He was the first Slade Professor of Art at, at Cambridge University, was a founding Professor of Art at the University of Essex. Um, he is currently Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he was given the gold medal for architecture by Rebra in, 19, in 2014, along with the CBE, and he's an honorary fellow of the Royal Academy. Miroslav Balka has shown, uh, to my counting, in uh, five continents of the world. Um, his art is in many of the major collections around the world. Um, he's shown in biennales from Sydney to Venice. He's shown in documentaries. Just in the last 15 years in London, he's done four substantial exhibitions at White Cube. He made an incredibly powerful intervention at the Freud Museum in 2014. And in 2009, he was the 10th artist to take on the monumental epic spaces of the Turbine Hall in that extraordinarily immersive and powerful installation, How It Is. So without further ado, it's a privilege for the Royal Academy by way of the British School at Rome and the Royal Geological Society um, to bring these two together. Could I just briefly thank the Polish Cultural Institute and the Drew Hines uh, Endowment for Architecture and Turkish Ceramics and the London Architecture Festival for their support of this event. Let's start with Joseph Rickvert, who will address the issue of conflict and memory. I expect to speak second, so I'm a bit taken aback. But the fact is that Miroslav and I share not only uh, the platform here and have done, shared the platform in Rome, but we share memories because we both are connected to a small town to the southeast of Warsaw called Otvotsk, where, which I fled on the 6th or 7th of September 1939 before the advancing German armies. So we have our first taste of conflict. And then um, uh, Miroslav was born a long time after that. And um, he's had a long connection with the town because third generation 
his, both his father and his grandfather were monumental masons in Otvorsk. So he's connected with stoneworking, with, um, with dealing with material, with, as it were, building material in that very small town from which, as I say, I fled all these years ago. So uh, that's, as it were, the locality which links us. But then, of course, we go through certain periods which, um, in which this whole process is redigested, reworked, um, in a way also restored. As you probably know, most of you will know this, I think, um, Warsaw was destroyed by the Germans, the retreating German army, what was left of it. Uh, and soon after the war, the old town, particularly the market square and the castle, were restored as was. They were restored to the state in which they were, certainly in 1939, and they hadn't in fact altered much since the 18th century, when Bernardo Bellotto, the younger Canaletto, there were two, they were uncle and nephew, I think, um, painted Warsaw. He was invited to Warsaw, and he was invited by, first by the Saxon kings to Dresden, and then came to Poland, and I think stayed there. I think he died in, in Warsaw. And he did about 40 or 50 paintings, most of which are in the castle in Warsaw, and um, in which he recorded with extraordinary felicity, as well as fidelity, the town as it then was. So if there were no measured drawings, and in fact there were very accurate measured drawings of the old market, um, they could, be, could have been restored almost directly from Canaletta's paintings. Um, well now, that's the problem of memory, isn't it? Um, what do you do with uh, buildings to which you are emotionally attached, which signify your past in a very um, rooted way and which have been destroyed? Do you say no to them? Do you make them anew? You make a new thing on the site? Do you keep the form of the building? Or do you say, no, I want it back as was? It's a problem which very many people have had. Um, in fact, I come back from a rather curious experience seeing the opening of Eileen Gray's house at Rockbrun. I don't know whether you know the house, but it was very abundantly published, um, both after it was built in the 1920s and much more recently when uh, four or five books have been written about her. Now, uh, the house was built in the 20s. Um, it was then thought of as exemplary. And um, as it so happened, Corbusier bought himself, built himself, a little hut in a restaurant next door to it. 
from which he used to go swimming, and indeed he went swimming, went for his last swim from which he never returned, because he had a heart attack while swimming. But for a couple of years, he painted the walls of that house. Um, he painted a large black and white scraffito fresco uh, under the piloti, and he painted paintings in the living room and at the entrance. Now, um, this is being restored very carefully. And of course, the problem is when you restore a building which two artists who were in conflict, because Eileen Gray never went back and saw his paintings, um, when you restore a building which two artists were in conflict, um, this is, of course, a tiny conflict compared to the ones we have experienced, um, what do you restore? Do you restore the better known major artists um, in position, or do you restore the original building to some of its pristine glory? What do you do when you restore? The conflict has passed. You are left with ruins. You are left with remains. Um, conflicts have passed all over the world, we know this, we, we, we witness it now, all the time. Uh, do you build back? Do you want, are you so attached to what there was before that you wanted back as was? Or do you think that your time demands that you do something else? It's a problem which, with which we have to which architects have to face all the time. Um, and it's a problem which has never been resolved, as it has not been resolved at Trogbrun. In fact, I suggested that they should build a replica of Eileen Gray's villa without the Corbusier paintings, and that, that would be the only way of restoring it to its proper state. Um, the, the way we have to cope with the remains of conflict is something which has never been resolved, to which there are any number of theoretical approaches, and um, with which we have to deal on an almost daily basis. But thank you for introducing the idea of a creative conflict between architects and artists. It's something we don't know anything about at the Royal Academy, obviously. Um, but also, you're right, it's an almost irresolvable problem. But it's one that we need to keep trying to resolve case by case, day by day, year by year. Um, on which note, and it maybe has no resonance at all with what Miroslav wants to say, um, let's hand over to Miroslav and then we'll start the conversation after we've heard from you. Miroslav. Yes, thank you. Before I start my short introduction, I would like to start a few comments with this, what Joseph yes. said. But first of all, good evening. I'm very happy being here in the city, which I know in the professional way since 1990, when I participated in a quite important exhibition in Serpentine and, uh, and ICA in London, Possible Worlds. What Joseph said about rebuilding the city of Warsaw based on the painting by Canaletto, uh, maybe I would like to mention another figure which is related with very painful history of Poland and Europe. The last commandant of death camp in Treblinka, Kurt Franz. 
Actually, the guy, the Treblinka, was a death camp which was totally erased just to hide all the traces of the crime which took place there. But uh, fortunately, the last commandant, Kurt Franz, was taking the photos of himself running, jogging in the beautiful forest of Treblinka because the, for, the death camp in Treblinka was very much hidden in the forest. And basing on the photos he took later, the historian could make reconstructions of the position of the barracks because it was a top secret camp, like every death camp in Poland. So this was how photography, and nowadays photography we also recognize as art, how the photos taken in this camp, they were useful to discuss the subject of memory. So this is just to make, to bring another figure to this discussion, not so positive as Canaletto, but <laughs> So maybe now I will I prepare for this 10 minutes uh, presentation a uh, few images as I am visual artist and however the sound and uh, all the senses are important for me but uh, uh, the sense of seeing it's the basic one and this is how I started and I would like to introduce you four figures who can be related with the subject of creativity and memory and conflict. And these figures will be artist, viewer, tree, and animal. So we start from the artist. I showed you the process uh, of creative process. And creative process also means noise. But there is a moment in this creative process, this was the moment of decision, which I pointed you with the green light. And uh, this is the moment when the artists decide about something. So it's not, and this is a moment when you can save something. And for example, I saved this piece of, uh, of wood, which later changed into the sculpture. And uh, so the artist can make decision, and also the decision can be made by the viewer or the witness, because I like the figure to describe the viewer of the exhibition, the witness of the exhibition, because the exhibition will never repeat in the same shape, and it's always, uh, it's always, related with the architecture of the place, uh, the works are in the relation of the architecture of the place where are they display. So here we have the work called Dead End, which, uh, which is very simple. These are just the walls covered to the height of two and a half meter, which is as much as I can reach. By reach, I also mean protection, as much as I can protect and they are covered with the thin layer of ash. And the ash came from my studio, and before it changed to ash, it was a coal and wood. And maybe that's why I showed you at the beginning also some wood, which later was used as a material to the heat the studio. And in this way, 
heat is a trace, uh, the ash is a trace of the heat and the fire. And of course, the visitor is coming and then disappearing, and then the work stay by itself. And there is always the question if it works by itself or it needs the presence of the witness or viewer. So here, this was a video piece which is titled Apple Tea. And uh, it was filmed in uh, the place which name I already mentioned today, in the place in Poland called Treblinka. And uh, I made this short video uh, in the evening. And this was, as you could see, the apple tree. And this apple tree stood in next to the next to the ramp, which doesn't exist any longer in this death camp. And the apple tree is very strongly related with the Christian iconography, related with the sin and paradise, and. This tree, however, it wasn't the witness of what happened during the Second World War. However, I have a feeling that this tree is in the position of the post-witness. So, after artist, after the visitor and the witness, we have another witness who can be the nature. And the last witness, uh, which I would like to present you, is this one. So the last witness was uh, called Bambi, and the title of this video was Winterreise Bambi. And it was a document made in, uh, in the old concentration camp and death camp as well, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And following the inspiration of Franz Schubert, I visited the site in the winter time. I visited the camp and I found these Bambis. I didn't expect that I will find these animals. And the title comes, is related, it's Bambi, because uh, it's related with the famous movie by Walt Disney, which was produced in 1942. And <clears throat> in States, and exactly 1942, January, after the conference in Wannsee, uh, was the, in Wannsee, in Germany, near Berlin, uh, the final decision of the final extermination of Jews in Europe was made. So that's why the title and also the question about the innocent, inno, inno, innocent character of the animal and nature in the confrontation with the architecture which is related with evil of the history. Thank you. There's always a, 
a reference to Hannah Arendt's idea about the banality of evil, but there's also the enduring nature of beauty or the resilience of, of, of the natural world. Um, I read somewhere, uh, Marissa, that you described your process as an artist as rather like going to places with a sort of giant hoover and that you hoover up experience and imagery. That's my clunky paraphrase. But when you go back to the studio, you empty the bag out to see what's there. I mean, that, seemed, that could be said to apply to some of the work you've just shown us. It, is, that, it, is the notion of bearing witness, your, is, that, is that the first act in the notion of memorialising or memorising when you make a work? Yeah, I mean, the first important part is uh, to visit the site, to be really in the place, because it's very popular our day that the people not seeing the things, they have their opinion about things, or they give the statement, just hearing something. <coughs> Actually, this is very popular in Poland discipline now, that, that regarding the avant-garde theater, that people are protesting against something, not seeing this. So first, the most important, I mean, the basic thing for me as an artist is, if I do something, I try to be there, I try to touch the reality, and later I can deal with these uh, shades of reality, because later the process is just, con once I bring this images to my studio, then I start another process of dealing with them, and this is a kind of the creativity. But the very basic thing which I had to do almost as a farmer, I had to, or hunter, I had to collect these plants or animals, I had to bring them home and then to do something with them. And there is a, another part of creativity. You know, but first, it was a, it was a moment of collecting the the, the the proofs, and then how to polish the proofs. And this is a little bit like uh, polishing diamonds. Yes, I mean before it is not touched uh, by the jubiler, jubiler, jeweler. Yeah. And it's just a stone, yeah. so it's the same with art, you know, it's the same with the process of like making sculpture from clay, it's the same, the clay is the clay, the ash is the ash. So it's responsibility and the vision of artist, how you will change it. And very often having the huge material and uh, you choose, I choose, you know, just a few seconds. Uh, of this material, and, and uh, this is my decision, this is what I showed at this first video, which is not work of art, this is just documentation of some fault. It shows how, where is the responsibility, that in the noise, like it was a noise, 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 finally you make the decision, and the piece of something which you protect, because Art is also very much about protection. It's not only about destroying and uh, building the new things. It's uh, the protection is very much important for me. So the concept of Michelangelo Buonarroti, when we can relate it with our last meeting with, in uh, in Rome, talking about Italian artists. Uh, 
For Michelangelo Bonarotti, the point was to, to find the piece of marble and then to take away the things which are not necessary, the, 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 the bits and pieces which are just, uh, which artist has to move away. And for me as an artist, I'm just, I'm not looking for this final product which Renaissance uh, artists were looking for, this three-dimensional product. I just put my attention to the dust, to the bits and pieces, to the leftovers, and then I try to bring them to the new life. Just, just working with these elements, with this mergence of the real product. And in this way, because recently I put a lot of attention because the area which uh, Joseph mentioned, Otvotsk, which is the southeast of Warsaw, about 30 kilometers, is also the area where in prehistorical time the culture of the Flintstone was very strong. The people were dealing with the <coughs> Flintstones. Um, and actually my studio in Otwotsk is about two kilometers from this uh, important place in the history of the Poland, which is this, and this history is called because of the river which is uh, nearby, the river which goes to Bistula River. The name of the river is Świder. So you can even find in the, uh, the internet the, the, the term Świderian culture which was related to this deals with the Flintstones. And the Flintstones, the importance of... Probably uh, too, yeah. Uh, it was quite interesting because the guys, they just divided the stone in the smaller stones and they didn't throw it away. They just collect even the small thin pieces of, of, of the stones and they were used as a needles, for example. Bigger were used as a knives. So it was very a very economical use of the object, which actually in the time of Renaissance, this desire of the verticality and the uh, reproduction almost of the body, of the three-dimensional product was uh, erased, this, this even this fragile gesture of the past. Well, long sentence. <laughs> no, but even hearing you talk, you move from one idea to a collective idea to no, uh, the idea of sloughing or various fragments are then taken off, but each has a possibility or a potential. There's something about the way you speak that mirrors the way you practice. But just before, because th there's many things to, to bring Joseph in on, but the other point to make, I suppose, is that your, the impact of your work is very strong and moving and profound, but it is on occasion an almost transient thing, isn't it? Or rather, you make objects, you work with objects, you make films, you make installations, but they're experiential, and then they can be taken down or moved elsewhere. So they start from an immensely strong sense of place, a place you visited, a place that's so charged, but then they're not specifically dealing with the sense of the place in which they're shown. They impact on or contaminate or change the place in which they're shown rather than relate to it. It depends, you know, because sometimes uh, the projects are very much related with the place where they exhibit and they are made to the place and they are, uh, they are just in this place. For example, this project was the project How It Is. 
Tate, yeah. At the Tate Modern, yes, in 2009, when I couldn't imagine that the sculpture which we built there could exist somewhere else. It was really made for the site in the dialogue with the architecture, because uh, it's a very strong architecture of the Turbine Hall. Uh, so the detail and the construction of the sculpture was in the relation with the with this huge interior, and also with the, the concept of this sculpture, was with the relation of the position of, the, of, of Tate Modern in London. So it was also the result of the research uh, and experience uh, of Millennium Bridge. So actually the piece, how it is started in, uh, in St. Paul's, Cathedral. When you once you walk, it and you took the million people are taking the millions of photos on this bridge, and each photo is great photo. It's very good <coughs> quality photo because it's outdoor. The Thames is beautiful river, and the sun or no sun, but it's everything goes well. But the concept of how it is included this walk and this positive character and once you enter you walk down the ramp to the sculpture how it is you've been confronted with the darkness you'll be confronted with the situation when finally the photo you want to take in this darkness doesn't work well it's hard to take a good photo and then you are becoming the real witness with yourself, not with the tools you are carrying with you, but with yourself. And actually, 2009 it was before, uh, before, before this uh, strong uh, flashlights in the mobile phones. So, so it was the era, <laughs> the beginning of the strong lighters. So, but anyway, I'm just telling this that the responsibility for me, responsibility of, of the work and the artist, it's not just limited even to this architecture, to the indoor architecture of, like in the case of how it is of Tate Modern, but also I, I had on mind, you know, the situation and the possible walk to the work, because we walk to the works, yes? We are not coming by planes, we have to go through something, yes? We have to go through the bridge, we have to go through the shop, we have to go through the restaurant, but it's always this kind of the relation. And I don't believe that, that uh, being the viewer, you know, you are related, you have relation only with the abstract place, the exhibition space. You, you meet people on your, on, your, on your way and it's also put impact on, on, on your mm, consciousness of, or your perception. So everything is, as an artist, with my experience, I see that all of these elements uh, I have to consider in my process of art. Joseph, it, it, I, wouldn't, I was going to use the phrase the tyranny of permanence, but that's actually probably too loaded. But one of the things that Miroslav utilizes and explores is the, the, the transient object or something that is installed for a certain period of time. Um, architecture deals with many things, and it doesn't always deal with permanence. 
but, but permanence is often a factor in architecture. And it's something you talked about at the beginning that, you know, such is our obsession with certain architectural buildings or structures being permanent, that when they're destroyed, we want to recreate them. Is that where the, the, the nub of the problem lies? Well, yes. Actually, what, what Miroslav's images spoke to me about is the horrible indifference of nature to us. Um, there's a death camp, but the apples will grow, and Bambi will play. Um, but the death camp is still there. There was, a pear, there was a pear tree, wasn't there, that survived 9-11 that I think was then repotted as part yes. of the monument? Yes, yeah. yes. I saw that as more redemptive, but... You, you... But, uh, you know, we... Uh, the death camps are a permanent problem uh, to deal with emotionally, artistically, in any way. They are, they are of course, not limited to Eastern Europe, there are death camps in Korea, the death camps in China, and so on. But um, maybe the ones in Eastern Europe were the first ones on an industrial scale, deliberate industrial scale. Um, and that, of course, brings us back to the wretched business of architecture. Uh, who designed those camps? They were actually designed by architects. And... Um, some people maintain that one or two of these architects had been Bauhaus products. But it's not the Bauhaus that, the, uh, that produced the death camps. The death camps were produ the production of misunderstood garden cities. That was the model for the death camps. Um, our cozy, friendly garden cities became the model for the barracks of the death camps. So um, there is a, there's a kind of in, built-in in, inversion of values in that. Um, uh, the, um, we know that one or two of Speer's assistants were, were actually concerned with garden cities. And, um, so it's, it's a lineage which is very weird and very crossed. Uh, and very nasty. Um, but what Miroslav deals with is something else, which is the contrast between um, the presence of horror in, in the natural world and the fabrication of horror by man. Um, and uh, architects stand at the crossroads of that, inevitably. You've actually, it's interesting that you've made yourself connections between, for example, Corbusier and death camps, not in an explicit way, but in a poetic way, stemming from what Joseph just said. We were thinking about a piece we talked about earlier, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> but of course, what, what Joseph said is very interesting because, yeah, some of the architects who designed, they were at the Bauhaus, but. And I, I do a lot of research, actually. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the research on the letter B, which is a part of the note above the entrance gate, uh, Arbeit macht frei, because this letter seems to be turned upside down. And my 
research, I find in looking at the blueprints of the architects of Auschwitz, I found this letter written in this way because, and uh, so I have a proof that because there is a group of the Polish uh, iron makers who proved that it was a kind, this, making this letter upside down was a sign of resistance. And they did it against the Nazis, and on the main entrance gate, they made the letter upside down, and nobody noticed uh, that that is wrong. And this was just like the gesture of saying, "Yes, we can. We can show you that we make a joke with the entrance gate to the to the camp." But I found actually in this blueprint paper, papers the, the this letter written in this way. So probably the guys got the order to make this letter from this another architect, and they did it. But anyway, the figure of Corbusier was also interested for me, because it was an uh, architect who came with this famous modular and announced it to the world in 1944. And uh, this was also the year when not as famous figure of Anne Frank was caught by the Nazis at her home where she was hidden. And in the same year, 1944, uh, she died in the camp. But uh, what was the relation? Because from one side you can say there is no relation. And for me, when I've been looking for relation, was a measuring of the human body. The measuring by Le Corbusier to create the optimal figure, the figure which fits architecture, and the architecture should be based on the dimension of this figure. So the, the net of modular, it was very progressive, we could say. But at the same time when uh, Le Corbusier was discussing these proportions, the parents of Anne Frank, for more than two years, they mark her height as she was a child and was growing relatively fast, they mark on the walls the, her growing. So it's about 13 centimeters of how she grew during two and a half years when she was hidden behind the board in the flat in Amsterdam. And the last line was on the height of 162 and a half centimeters. So once I make the work, drawing work, which is also, it was also kind of performance when I draw in the public, this drawing the net of the Corbusier, of course, without the figure, with raised hand, which is another interesting figure, the raised hand in the 30s and 40s. It meant a lot in the different countries like Italy, in Germany, for example, and all the satellite fascistic countries, Romania, Hungary. And in this net of the Le Corbusier modular, I add the short line with pencil, everything was in pencil, and this line was on the height of 162.5 centimeters. And this was the meeting point, how the big history meet the small history, and that everything is important. And for me, it was important gesture. 
and that's how Le Corbusier appear. And recently, you know, they found the historians are digging, 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 and they found the letters of uh, Le Corbusier to his mother, uh, which were written uh, from the part of the Vichy in France, which he, which which are the the the, the proofs of the sympathy to the dark side of the of the regimes of the last war of Le Corbusier. So this, this is how it is now with the figure of Le Corbusier and the relation of the Second World War. Contaminated. I don't want to be pedantic about this, but in fact, the module was done after the war. In fact, Corbusier records his trip to America working on the United Nations building. And in fact, the Corbusier strip was drawn by a Polish architect called Jerzy Sultan. Yeah, but 44, it exists. I'm sorry, he, he records the being in the ship and measuring the ship. And that is the, that's where he, he has established the dimensions. But, but then he's been working on, on this figure. And well, they are he the was drawings. Writing, he was working on the idea of the ideal man, Purusha. He was reading, he was, he had occultist friends. Um, we don't know how much he was involved in it, but he certainly had occultist friends, one of whom was his neighbor mm -hmm. in the apartment below him. And so he knew about Purusha, he knew about the Hindu ideal man, mm -hmm. who in fact fits into a square, and it's a complicated idea, which I'm not going to try and comment on now. But uh, he'd been interested in that already in the 30s. But in the 40s, if you check in internet, <laughs> not you, a reliable source, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I was going to say you. you not only one source, I'm you, afraid. You both could be right. I mean, it could exist, but it, it was made public I, later. I can, only, can I just add a footnote? Please do. Please do. Uh, Sultan himself was just over two meters high, and he had translated some of Corbusier's writings into Polish before the war. So when he came out of prisoner of war camp in 1944, he went to work for Corbusier in Paris. And he went, he made an appointment, he arrived at the apartment, rang the bell, uh, Corbusier opened the door, looked up at him and said, but you're too tall. And so, how high was the... He was about 210. And uh, Le Corbusier? He oh, was, he was quite he was, small. Was he? Yes, yes. <laughs> We could go, we've reached that crossroads, we could go anywhere. I, actually, scale is interesting because your work, Miroslav, you've talked about the reach and the scale of your own body. And I mean, I suppose one of the subjects around fragment memory conflict is, is and, and memorialization is scale, intimacy, monumentality against intimacy. Um, what, has the notion of, you were a figurative artist, then you stop being a literally a figurative artist. But the human body still remains the measure of all things for you. And without that, your art... Yeah, I mean, I'm still a figurative artist, you know, but, but I, I rather expose the, the shadow of the figures, not... And the shadow is also the trace of the figure, so, you know... But we could call them, if not anti, there's the notion of monumentality with the anti-monument too. Uh, Joseph, we've talked a lot about 
removal as well as uh, creation or destruction as well as creation. And you talked about artists at the architects at the crossroads. What about responsibility um, and the notion of when not to build is as creative or powerful an act as to build in commemoration? Well, it's the old problem. When does an architect refuse a commission? Um, not for me to say. Uh, but it's a problem which architects have always faced. Um, so it's not a new one. Emptiness, I suppose, though. I mean, I was thinking, moving to more contemporary monuments, 9-11, um, and the issue that we're going to have in London um, in the foreseeable future as to what happens to that horrendous human tomb, uh, Grenfell Tower, that presumably it would have to be demolished. The question then is, is it restored in an act of uh, 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 commemoration, but also the idea of producing something better for people to, to live in? Or is, it, is, the, is the site left, and is there a kind of memorial? I mean, that again is an old debate. Well, but you I, know, it's a problem we had in 1666. With the um, fire, of course, and London was rebuilt, wasn't it, exactly, on yes, the same street it plan? it wasn't. As the street plan was retained. Yes, the street plan was retained, that's yes. right, yes. Um, there, were, there were two or three plans for reorganising London, but none of them were accepted, because property, pro property prices and property rights were retained, and people wanted their property back. They didn't want to live in a highly organized plan. So uh, that was the decision taken by the City of London at the time. Indeed. And um, in a sense, the street plan of the city commemorates that which went before it, and we, we, we layer and build. Um, but then Thinking about, you were mentioning St Paul's earlier, Miroslav, and um, the area around St Paul's was destroyed during the war, but not the, the, the place itself. And there's another opportunity to commemorate or not. Um, I, I wonder what you, you, you think about the post-war rebuilding in, in Britain uh, in terms of commemoration or memorial or lost opportunity. Well, one of the great enterprises of the immediate post-war period were the new towns. And that was, of course, the Garden City again revised in a new form and, and, and of course much bigger and much much more populous than how I'd ever, ever imagined. It's a very mixed bag post-war building in England. Some of it very good, some of it lousy, as you well know. Indeed. Yeah, I was trying to provoke you into a, a kind of response, but good for you, diplomatic to the last. Um, well, let's, let, let's, before I throw it to the floor, let's talk about responsibilities. Um, Mirza, do you, are there responsibilities that you have an artist, as an artist, dealing with commemoration or memory? Or can you only have responsibilities to yourself initially? That's the romantic view of an artist. I don't suspect that's your view, but I wonder what you, you feel about that. I think everything, you know, nothing is black and white, let's say. So, however, responsibility for the artist nowadays is to be much more social than it was before 20 years ago and I feel it on my back. However, uh, I think that artists shouldn't forget about himself because I educate myself 
for myself and for societies. If I will be more educated, the society in some way, as I am a member of the society, we also will be more educated as I'm part of this. So I think, uh, we, 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 I think there is a still place for work of art in our societies. It's not like this that uh, we can forget about uh, doing things as artists, that we should just do things with the social groups, with the working on the field of the making art more social or something like this. I, I think that there is a still um, possibility to generate, to create the values which you can share with the other people and this is our responsibility as artists in the society. It's not only that we are leaving our professions, our education, we just start another jobs, because there is a tendency nowadays like this, but we have to do it directly for people, uh, you know, making workshops or doing different things. But, but uh, I think that the, for sure, as I see from my perspective, as I finished Academy of Fine Arts in 1985, also, I see that, uh, and this is a good thing, that the definition of work of art uh, has changed. And fortunately, the work of, ar of art is uh, much more horizontal nowadays, not as vertical as it was 30 years ago. And I think this is a good side. But being horizontal, as an artist, I don't think that I have to be flat. <laughs> you know, we can work in the horizontal because working on horizontal, you can also, uh, which is a good thing today, that, and this is what I teach my students because I also teach students at the Academy of Fine Arts in Warsaw, that the process is very important. You know, not necessarily the final product but the process, how it's done, and the process can be creative as well as a final product. This is what I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the Schwiderian culture, pioneers, uh, how, how their responsibility for the being social and being creative. So, so this is, I think, the answer for your question. It is, yeah. Um, Let's throw this to the floor. There's architects and artists here on the floor. Thank you very much. My name is James Stewart. I work as an architect. I'm very interested in this side, uh, in what you're talking about, but it seems to me that cities, what they are, are the story of memory and conflict. That's what they are. What's lacking is witness. And the whole deal of art is witness, because that's where responsibility is. I think it's quite ironic that um, there's this idea of the art not working without the viewer. Could the art be, what, you, you mentioned something I wrote down. Um, you say, does the art work for itself without a viewer? Well, of course it doesn't, in my opinion, because there is no witness. So if there's no witness, there's no responsibility. And it seems to me that, you know, we've talked about these horrific, horrific things, and embedded in these horrific things is, you know, the very essence of peace, you know, the, the idyll. So you have the concentration camp that looks like a, a beautiful family rustic barn and all the rest of it, which was de a deliberate uh, ploy of the design of these places. You know, it seems that, you know, the, the idea of war <coughs> and the idea of peace are on exactly the same, they're a scale, and they're, they're, they're opposite ends of the, 
the same scale, of the same state of consciousness. And what's lacking in this evolution of the way we do citizen, the way we do art, is the lack of witness. So, you know, in answer to the question, I don't think that art works without the viewer. It's, you know, it can't, can it? It doesn't work for itself because there is no witness, so therefore there's no responsibility. So therefore there's no way of, of sort of moving the whole conversation forward or having another energy that, that takes it, that extends the boundary of understanding and the, uh, and the awareness of the present, and, or expanding the present moment in this circumstance. So the city is that story of memory and conflict. It's happening moment by moment. I don't think it's a thing of, I think that what's happened at Grenfell will be an evolution of, you know, understanding that and the enlarging of the present moment around those events. That's what I think. It's an observation rather than a question, but thank you. Yeah, a good one. Joseph, do you have you? No, it brought to mind the fact that Picasso once told Matisse off for decorating a convent chapel and said, why don't you decorate a brothel? And Matisse said, because they didn't commission me. Um, well, it's half an answer, really, isn't it? Although, the bearing witness doesn't have to be passive, and I'm not saying you've implied it was, but you talk about there's going to be a natural evolution, that cities are, they bear witness to these, to these conflicts. They are, in effect, the, the witness to these conflicts. But that, that begs the question as to, uh, which was how we started, but I, I, think you, I think we should push you a bit more, Joseph, about the notion of what our responsibilities are as citizens or planners or architects in the evolution of cities in the face of the memorialization of conflict or the removal of traces of conflict and so on. I mean, well, we saw it on the site of 9-11, didn't we? Um, there was a competition. Um, there was a winning project. Um, the winner was awarded the commission. And the commission was, I mean, I, whatever you may think of that project, the commission was slowly slipped away from him and went to a large commercial office. And what is on the site now is not... It's, it's horrible anyway, but I mean, it's not in any way related to the original project. Um, who is responsible? Politics, the complexity of situation in New York, various yes. interest groups. And of course, the architects themselves. Yeah. So, uh, given that you trained as an architect as well as a, you're a critic and theorist and historian, what would, given what you saw of, of Daniel Liebskin's initial plans and Michael um, Arad's final monument and so on, Within the context of what seemed possible at various stages, what would have been the best solution for the memorialization of the tragedy of 9-11 in New York for you? Is that a commission? Yes, <laughs> but only a sort of uh, um, a, a yes. virtual one in the context of this room. No, I, I, th I think there is no, there's no short answer to your question. No, but, but uh, um. I'm still going to push you. <laughs> I don't know that anybody else would like to give one, but I think I, I certainly haven't got one. What, I, what happened, I really dislike very much. But um... So you would have gone back and had another open competition and started again? Okay, I gave, gave you the get-out, but it's a d diplomatic answer. But, um... but I, it's not an answer to a question. No, it's not. Okay, next question here. Richard. Um, this might not be a question, but 
it's nice or uh, particular that Joseph would use the word dislike. Um, I want to raise the, the term prurience. So if you walk through London a typical week, you will find countless memorials um, over, I don't know, 300 years. Mostly you don't, I would guess, most people here don't know what any of them are about. I'm not sneering, I just mean people haven't really got the time to find out what they refer to. But the ones that you do know about are really deeply embarrassing. Are really Deeply embarrassing. embarrassing. Yes. And there's a kind of prurience when you find, your, and I felt it this evening actually, I, that there's a kind of uh, discomfort in me uh, with, within a way what we're talking about. I feel, I actually feel shaky. I feel slightly weird. <coughs> we don't have the language. We've lost that language. I'm not going to start a guided tour now, but I... I'd but it's like just going to... Are Lutchens... Is Lutchens senator? Well, Lutchens is the exception. Right. Okay. Lutchens is the, the... You know, but what about all that junk on Whitehall? I mean, what about all the other stuff? You know, that, the reason the Lutchens were so good was because it stood alone. It doesn't sound alone. What about Hyde Park Corner? My God. You know, what a terrible place. I'm glad I didn't die in the war. You know, this is bad. This is really bad. This is Prince Charles bad. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to disagree. Um, <laughs> but interestingly enough, if we cast a net wider, the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, my myelin, is always seen as a kind of landmark, isn't it? Am, am I right? This is how I've always seen it as a landmark in in the evolution of the notion of the memorial. I mean, yes. she was an architect as well as an artist by training. It was the naming, it was the bearing witness by naming. Yes, well, as you know, the RAF memorial in Hyde Park, um, which Richard didn't mention, but which is there, is grotesquely cited. And uh, we have at Hyde Park, we have a model of how not to do it. So <laughs> I think this lady We do, yeah. I hope I'm not going to have a diplomatic answer that time, but I'm really young. So if uh, something like that is going to happen in the future, what do you think? We, you think we need to keep the memories or we need to rebuild? What would you do if it's going to happen again? Sorry, if what's going to happen again? Well, like uh, something like we destroy everything again for like any other stupid reason and we have to restart again. Do we need to start back? Like, uh, what have we done in the past? So we need to rebuild everything from, like... Well, we have an abundance of tragic sites, don't we? We have the sites of the two atomic bombs, which were, of course, unique. We have the sites of the many death camps in Southeast Asia, China, and in Europe. And we have the sites of the terrorist attacks. Um, in each of these, we have to deal with a problem which is, in a sense, unique. I don't think that is a general answer. I think we have to deal with each one of them as we come across it, as we, as we deal with it, as a social fabric tries to absorb the horror that has happened. The Japanese, in a way, managed better than most. There's something about a place for collective 
memory, though, that is still powerful, isn't it, Miroslav? I mean, I, I, you're quite right. I wanted to talk about the difference in your practice, but as well as the, 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 the transience. But one of the things about how it is was it was a collective experience as well as an individual one. One of the reasons why there's still an appetite or a need for public memorials is, is to create a place, which also this is the overlap with architecture, where people can go and collectively and individually understand, express grief, meditate or whatever. It's the same, I mean, I went to the towers, just as, I mean, Richard's description of feeling uneasy and prurient and sickly, it's totally my feelings a week ago when I went to the Grenfell Tower, I just went nearby just to, to see this horror rather than that which had been mediated through the television. But it's a very interesting thing because it's a collective site, everyone is there, but at the same time, we're, everyone is uneasy about why they're there and you're looking at other people thinking, why are you there and why am I here? But at the same time, there is this need to go together to do that. Yeah, actually, this what we talk about. It was described by Professor Zygmunt Bauman, yeah. actually, in his text to the catalogue of this exhibition at the Tate, when he found how strange people can, can be together in the darkness. So, unfortunately, we came to the, to the time when the when to find togetherness, we, we need the dark side and the darkness. So it's, it's very strange that, that we really need it, but, but this is what we need. And what you said before about how successful the Washington Memorial was, I mean, it's, it's, it was true it's because of the names, but, but also how the names are related with the with the graves, with the graveyards, yes. So it's, it, was, it was a kind of the uh, common graveyard where the names are displayed on the walls and there is nothing better than, than, than just to show the individual character of the tragedy. Unfortunately, we cannot do it with Holocaust as so many victims are unknown from because of, of from their names, but uh, then that's how easy it's to play with the numbers, as as the number doesn't mean too much, and there's always the mistake in the numbers, and that's how easy it's to manipulate with the numbers and proving that uh, it was not million, that it was eight hundred thousand, and this is so the games. So the best the most, I think, important part of the memorial is the name. But it is, I mean, we all admire Maya Lin's memorial in Washington, but a lot of the veterans were very unhappy with it. What did a conventional sculpture they celebrating the Marine They wanted a conventional sculpture of, of soldiers raising a flag. Yeah. So there is now bronze sculpture by the side of the memorial. Yeah, yeah. We don't know how long it lasts, but it's there. So we, people related with the art architecture, we talk about this sculpture, which is a kind of abstract with the names, yes. and finally there is a proof, vertical, which has to be vertical, because monument has to be vertical. Still, <laughs> I mean. But, but in fact, the interesting thing to me, one of the interesting things about Mirosov's uh, work is that he actually does as it were, deciduous monuments. Um, they are monuments which are made of 
friable materials which will change with time. Is that what a monument should do? I think possibly yes. Um, bronze has been no patinates, but that's a very mild alteration. Um, I think his are liable to more aggressive patination than just that of bronze. And that's, in a way, one of the interesting things about them. Talking about patinization, I'm not an expert in this, because I think things like this patina is becoming in natural way. Yes. This is actually what August Rodin didn't care. And that's why the best pieces by him were the plaster cast, because then he took control with this process. And later, when it was casted to bronze, he just, in this enormous number of copies, which every museum has the, 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 the head of uh, sculpture by Rodin, but he didn't care. And I think that probably, yeah, the casting, this is the pro problem that yeah, the problem of casting in general, because once you, the memorial expect the cast in bronze, it, it did, didn't put, it doesn't put attention to this creative gesture of using the clay or casting this in the simplest material, which is plaster. Memorial is asking for bronze and this and then about patina, and this is very much like the societies who are looking for patinas. By looking for strong materials just to prove something, just to prove not creativity, but, but the power of the structure, which is uh, about building the hierarchy, not about which is not about communication. There's something about public taste that we really haven't got time to go into, but Richard Wentworth touched on it, and we've, you've touched on it too. And again, it's the unsayable thing about whether societies or people get the buildings or the art that they deserve, and that should art and architecture lead public taste or reflect public taste. And the problem about the world at the moment, or one of the issues, is the rise of populism and the empowerment of public taste. Um, there's a kind of finale... What are both of your views about the responsibility or the role of art and architecture in, in leading or shaping taste generally, but around this particular subject? I mean, I guess everyone in this room who's part of the art or architectural profession would say, yeah, we have to be leaders, but it's not quite as simple as that, and the world is perceived to be changing in that regard. What are your observations after eight, nine decades of looking at this, Joseph? <laughs> <laughs> Don't just say it's complicated, because it is, but, and you're brilliant at that, but what, what are your observations? Well, when I started in this business, we were all very hopeful. We were going to build for the new society. And then the society changed. So we weren't building for that new society anymore, and things changed around us. Now, uh, the society uh, in which we live, which we were told very firmly by our Prime Minister doesn't exist, that only individuals and families exist, um, the society around us is now so focused on fiscal value that there is no time for anything else. Um, and, of course, everything else is what we're concerned with. So there isn't very much time for us. 
I think we're in, I'm, I'm not optimistic. How things will change, we don't know. And of course they will, because they always do. But um, <coughs> the moment is not a happy one. Well, unfortunately, I have to agree with this, what Joseph <laughs> said. But of course, even if we have ambitions, or we have in mind being the leaders of changing or have an influence on the situation, for sure we, we, we shouldn't wear the yellow t-shirts like the leaders of the Tour de France or the <laughs> this is the, the time when we have to adopt a little bit, we have to come down and once we come down maybe we have come down even deeper because and we have to come deeper for looking for the ideas because what Joseph said, this is a time a little bit when we forgot about motivation and ideas and to, to find them this is a time when probably we have to come down below the sea level and to find the ground. And then this is a time of diving. We have to dive to the bottom. And once we will not find the bottom, we will not make any progress. Because I think so many demo democratic structures, however, from the perspective of the cities, we think that everything is fine, but, but actually, this populist movements are so strong, so the only way to to survive is to find the ideas and progressive ideas, and we will not find them if we don't come down. We have to come down a little bit. I don't know if a little bit, maybe even deep, and we have to find them. We have to find the ground where we can use to go up into but the But not light. vertically. In this direction. <laughs> <laughs> On which poetically skewed note we should end. Can I thank Joseph Rickwood and Miroslav Balka? Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.